If you have your Bibles, can you please turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 3? Daniel, chapter 3. Father, do what you do best. Help us in our weakness. Minister to our hearts, our minds, our souls. May we see you this morning in the Word. And may we, as a result, be changed from one degree of glory to another. For your namesake we pray. Amen. Chapter 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before that image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, You're to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. 
If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes, and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap. Inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way, then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. That's quite a story. In fact, that's not just a story. When the world seems to be caving in on you, what do you tend to do? Um, Have you considered what you would do if you were required to deny your faith in Christ? Uh, Would you refuse to obey at the cost of your, your position, your possessions, and even your life? What would rescue look like to you? Maybe you'd take up arms, fight. Or maybe you'd flee for your life if you could. Or maybe you'd comply and obey. 
one thing seems to be inescapably true in my experience um, of my own life and observing other people's lives. And here's, here's, here, here's the punch. When push comes to shove, our deepest sympathies and loyalties surface. They just come up. And our true colors seem to shine when the pressure's on, where, when, where, where we are at in our lives. Now, throughout God's covenant people's uh, history, there has been time and time again uh, testing, uh, perilous opposition against them, whether it's through pagan, um, theistic, or even atheistic systems of thought, governments. The people of God in history have been, at one time or another, killed for their faith. And uh, one of those things that's evidenced is a book that attests to this fact. It's called Fox's Book of Martyrs. Maybe some of you have read it or have heard of it. And a modern-day equivalent that I want to read a story out of is called Extreme Devotion. It's put out by uh, the Voice of the Martyrs. And the story goes like this. Colorado, Rachel Scott. I lost all my friends at school. Now that I've begun to walk my talk, they make fun of me. Rachel's journal entries showed her disappointment that the very people to whom she wanted to show Christ's love turned away from her, but she wouldn't give in. I'm not going to apologize for speaking the name of Jesus. I will take it. If my friends have to become my enemies for me to be with my best friend, Jesus, then that's fine with me. I always knew being a Christian means having enemies, but I never thought that my friends were going to be those enemies. Rachel was a student at Columbine High School on the day two students were opened fire in the school. One gunman asked her if she still believed in God. She looked him in the eye and said, yes, she still believed. He asked her why, but he didn't let her answer before killing her. Rachel Scott passed her test, and because she did, her light reached beyond her school to around the world. Long before the test came, Rachel expressed her willingness to give her all for Christ. The words from her journal, written exactly one year before her death, tell about her commitment. I am not going to hide the light that God has put into me if I have to sacrifice everything. I will. If the God of the Bible is not real and true, she wasted her life. She was an utter fool. But, if this God of the Bible actually is real, and the one true God, and the only one who can rescue from His wrath, then what she did is what should be expected of anyone who professes faith in Christ. Loyalty to Him. Throughout the history of God's people, their loyalties have been put to the test. And if you belong to Christ today, I know, just like me, your loyalty to Him is being put to the test. In chapter 1, this uh, book of Daniel, uh, we saw that 
God sovereignly displaced his people because of their rebellion, their idolatry against him. And uh, this chapter we're going to look at is without question one of the most colorful, memorable, and awesome displays of God's power to rescue his people. They bring to mind, specifically for me, the crossing of the Red Sea. The, the miracle of God rescuing Israel out from the clutches of the most powerful nation on earth at that time. Now, right here, one of the challenges we have is two of them as I see them. Number one, the story we're going to look at, for many of us, it's a Sunday school story. We've heard of Daniel in the lion's den, and we've heard of you know, the three Hebrew children, God delivering them out of the furnace, out of the blazing furnace. This is even a story that's alluded to often for a journalist, for a punchline, uh, in, in, for a sportscaster to make uh, his point when he is calling a game, for example. But what I don't want us to miss here is that the God who is there rescues His people from the worst of perils. Do we believe that? Do we trust that? Up to this point in chapter 1, we've seen that God sovereignly displaces His people, as I've said earlier, because of their rebelliousness and their idolatry, and He uses a pagan nation who does not acknowledge God at all. Chapter 2, we saw that God not only uses them, but He uses His people to make a point that God and God alone is the absolute sovereign and only His kingdom is the only kingdom that will last forever. Not the kingdoms of this world, but the kingdoms of the God of Daniel. Now in chapter 3, what we're going to see is that Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get this. He's a little thick in the head. He's blinded to this fact such that he is going to require something of his subjects. And when these subjects, particularly these three specific Hebrew men, refuse, then we see this climax of God's great rescue, and then finally the reward that these three men are given. First of all, the requirement is the requirement to worship an idol. Verses 1 through 7. Some kind of golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has made. And um, he, 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 I think he forgets chapter 2 where he made this confession. Chapter 2, verse 47, where he says, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. This was in response to Daniel not only telling him what the dream was, but explaining to him of the coming kingdoms, including Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. But really, this is just lip service. Because had it not been lip service, he would have said, instead of using the word uh, he would have said that surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. Well, sometime in the next couple of chapters, he's going to be forced to realize that God truly is the God of gods, the King of kings, and the Eternal One. And all will and must bow to this great God. Moreover, despite God's warning that through the dream and interpretation that he would judge 
and destroy idol-worshipping nations, Nebuchadnezzar just goes on. So what does he do? He erects this, this uh, 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 90-foot-high statue, a gold statue. Perhaps uh, a statue that, uh, that was explained to him, that represented him and his kingdom in chapter 2. But uh, we're, not, we're not exactly sure. Now, note this. He, doesn't, he does not forbid the private worship of his subjects. He doesn't, he doesn't say you can't privately worship other deities. For him, pluralism is the accepted social norm. Much like our day, um, it's okay if you want to worship your God in your own way and uh, keep it in the private sector, great. No problem. We're, we're, we're good there. The early church experienced the same dynamic in the state where Rome did not have a problem with Christians worshiping the quote-unquote one true God. But once that was being challenged where they were not bowed to Caesar as Lord, that's when the problems came. And that's when the problems came to the three Hebrew children, and that's when the problems come to us. We just need to understand this is nothing new. It's always been this way. And we are tasting of that reality today. So he doesn't forbid private worship. Pluralism's cool. But he demands or requires complete loyalty to the state. As represented by the public ceremony of prostrating before this image which probably represented uh, his god Nabu which is the god of wisdom and scribal arts. So what's this saying? What's the meaning of all this? You pledge allegiance to Nabu's viceroy, the king. And if you don't, if you don't, you're dead. The threat is out. The gauntlets have been thrown, and um, this is pretty bad. This is bad. You'll be burned alive. You refuse, you'll be burned alive. Any of you ever been burned with scalding hot water? I think it's something like 210 degrees, something like that. Don't, don't you know, take me for an expert here. But um, it gets hot. Well, um, that's probably one of the worst ways to die. To be burned alive. And this is what the three Hebrew children are facing. In the book of Revelation, there's going to be similar things that are going to come upon the church where those who do not bow down to the image of the beast will be killed. There's again an image that is to be worshipped. And if not, penalty of death is the reward. My question is this. What idols are contending for your loyalty today? What created thing, which in and of itself isn't bad, have you made ultimate and therefore, it is an idol. It is your greatest treasure. It is what you value most. Who or what is requiring of you loyalty 
at the expense expense of your faithfulness to God, friend. So the requirement, worship the idol. Now you've got the refusal to worship any God, but God we will not do. That's verses 8 through 18. In verse uh, 8, charges are brought against the Jews from the Chaldeans. These are the nobility. These are people of high standing. Thus, their charge is heightened. The, the, the gravity, the weight of their charge is even heightened even more. First of all, they're accused by these in verse 8. And they're accused of something very specific. Verse 12. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. They are not conforming. They're not bowing down. I want you to note something. Verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This infuriates the king. And note what he does, verse 15. Actually, verse 14. Is it true? He asks them. Are the charges true? I envision him giving them an opportunity to recant to get out of this hot seat they're in. This literal hot seat that awaits them. Is this true? Now, if you're ready, bow down at the sound of the music, bow down and everything will be cool. But, if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Okay, oh boy, it's on now. Their lives are on the line. And the insolence and the arrogance of this king whom God raised up for God's purposes to be the most powerful man on the earth, he thinks he's ultimate. I want you to note this. The king not only has their bodies from captivity, chapter 1, and their service in government. You know what he wants? He wants it all. He wants their souls. And friend, I don't want you to think for a minute that the same tactic is not happening for those of you who say, I love Jesus. If you don't think that the enemy of your soul wants your soul, wants your loyalty, then you haven't been paying attention to what God has revealed. If I think that, I haven't been paying attention to what God has revealed. And the truth is, sometimes we all forget that, don't we? We forget. Kind of numb in the head sometimes, and really dull of heart. Now, why didn't they conform? Why did they not conform. Deuteronomy 6, 
verse 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. You know why they didn't conform? Because this was not just something they recited as faithful Hebrews did. Much like we are used to hearing the Lord's Prayer, they would recite the Shema. The Lord is one. There is no other God. What does that hearken back to? Exodus 20, verses 1 through 4. Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. That text says several things. Number one, God and God alone is your rescuer. Number two, there is no other gods. There are no other gods. That's not saying there are other gods, but you're to worship you know, the one true God. No, no. What, what, what that is affirming is there are no other gods. They're all false. First commandment is utter loyalty to this God. Why? Why would God demand utter loyalty? Well, he says... I brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. These three men remembered who they were. They didn't forget their identity. For them, the will of God was everything. And in answer to what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands, their actions and their words reveal this. Who? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who said, let there be light, and there was light. The God who has sovereignly displaced us through you, Nebuchadnezzar. The God who has absolute sovereign control over the kings and kingdoms of this world, Nebuchadnezzar. The God whose kingdom alone is eternal and unshakable, unlike yours. That's the God of creation. The only one true God, and you know what? That's utterly exclusive. Their response and their actions witness to a God who is utterly exclusive. Now, in a pluralistic society, in our culture today, for you to say you're a Christian is fine. For you to say Jesus Christ is the only one true God and the only Savior. Now, now, you're an enemy. You're an enemy of peace. You are filled with hatred. You, in fact, are the problem to the major ills of our society. We must shut you up. And in the workplace, you feel that, don't you? If you work in a place where they are hostile to the gospel, where pluralistic, where a pluralistic view of the way things should be are, and you start standing out and saying, uh-uh, you're going to feel the weight of the opposition. It's real. It's real. How do you combat that? You can't do it on your own strength. 
These men didn't do it on their own strength. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we're not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Wow. We're not going to do it. I want you to note several things. Number one, they weren't rude. They were forthright, clear. You know what they're doing here? It's called civil disobedience. It's called civil disobedience. In Acts chapter 5, verse 29, there's the account of uh, the apostles, Peter, James, and John, uh, where they were um, told by the authorities that they should not preach in the name of Jesus Christ. And they said this, we must obey God rather than men. Now, in, what, in light of what did they say that? This is the same light that the three Hebrew men are experiencing. In the light that God alone is ultimate. Not the state. Not the church. And certainly not any monarch. So when the king is requiring allegiance, it can only go so far. I mean, they were serving him. They were in the government. They were ruling. So they were submitted to his authority, but they were submitted to his authority to a certain point. Just about now, the king crossed the line. He crossed the line. What do you do when somebody crosses the line when it comes to your loyalty to God? Psalm 27, verse 1. The psalmist says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? I want want you to hear this. The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Who is this Lord that the psalmist is asking? Who is this Lord? He is the Lord of the covenant. He is the God who rescued Israel from Egypt. He is the God of creation. He is the one and true God. And I want you to see the confidence of the psalmist. It needs to be our confidence. The confidence of the psalmist is not in his faith. The confidence of the psalmist is in his God. Second Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says this, verse 8, We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. 
Indeed, we have the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. Paul experienced danger. These three Hebrew children were experiencing grave danger. I want you to notice something. The if clauses. Back in Daniel. When he says, if God... Let me get there. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we're not going to bow down. Note this. First, the, of the many things that I see here, number one, God exists. For the three Hebrew children, their, their um, religion um, was really being put to the test. They believed God exists. Number two, He is able to rescue them from the king. Number three, even if they must burn alive, they will not serve another god. They will not. They will not serve another god. So, from where does this resolve come? Where does this holy stubbornness come from? The knowledge of God. The knowledge of the Lord of creation. The knowledge of the God of the covenant. Why is this important? Why am I belaboring this? There's no way they could have withstood this test unless they knew God. And I think it's really important for us not to kid ourselves that if we neglect such a great a salvation that's been revealed to us when testing comes, that we will be able to pass the test if we don't know this God who has revealed Himself, ultimately in His Son, Jesus Christ. They knew their history. They knew their history as God's covenant people because God's revelation was not lost to them. They paid close attention to those things that were delivered to them through the prophets. And even though, this is very huge and this is really important for us not to, to forget. Even though they were displaced geographically, they, they were no longer in, in where they grew up, where they were born. They were not only displaced geographically, they were displaced linguistically. Now, they don't even talk my language. I've got to learn another language. Not only that, they are displaced culturally and everything that includes it. Music, food, everything. But even in the midst of that, what do we see? We see that God's people, by God's power, can not forget 
their identity as His people. Have you lost your identity? Do you find you losing your identity by how you're living? Do you name the name of Christ and, and, you know, your life doesn't look anything different than somebody who is a blasphemer, somebody who's an atheist? Does my life reflect that of somebody who worships God with his lips, but my heart is far from him? Where are you at? Where am I at? They never forgot their identity as God's covenant people in spite, in spite of these circumstances. And their confidence in God's faithfulness, even though they may die, was resolute. But I want you to understand something. Of the many things faith is not, the book of Hebrews says, faith is the substance, my translation, how I've remembered it, the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Biblical faith is never a leap into nothingness. A leap of, oh well, I hope it's true. Biblical faith is nothing like that. The God of the Bible is not like that at all. No, biblical faith is trusting in the God of the Bible who has revealed Himself in both creation and in the Scriptures. Biblical faith is not a faith that is irrational. It is very rational. But it's not just rational. It will test your loyalty to the point of death. According to Hebrews 11.38, these were men of whom the world was not worthy. And they were those who quenched the power of fire through faith. Not faith in their faith. Faith in God. Faith in God's power. Why? Because, friend, we are not ultimate. We are creatures. We are finite. We are needy. God is ultimate. God is the one who rescues. He's the one who saves. And even in our weakness, He comes through. Even when our hearts are hard, He comes through, doesn't He? Even when we don't want anything to do with Him, He comes through. What do you find your confidence in when reality comes crashing down on your life? Does suffering make you flee to God? Or does suffering make you run from God? The problem of evil. It's real. Pain and suffering does a lot of funny things to us frail human beings. And uh, like you, I've experienced times where, God, are you real? 
or I just can't see straight. Romans 8, 28 says this, We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. He's talking about salvation. He's talking about the greatest rescue of all. And Paul is asking, what then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who's against us? This is hard to believe when you've been done wrong by people that are more powerful than you, either physically or or with authority. We human beings can be pretty heinous. We, we're, we're able to do very many good things, but we also have a capacity to just be utterly cruel to one another. What do you do, number one, as a victim? What do you do, number two, as the perpetrator? Realizing, oh God, what have I done? Oh God, look what's been done to me. What do you do? What do you do with this? Verse 32 says this, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him for us all. This is the Father delivering His Son for us all. How will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Well, the answer is He will. But but the answer doesn't come in how in our culture, in our tendency to love, ease, comfort. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died, yes rather, He who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Listen, Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Verse 37, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced, listen to what Paul's saying here, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You may be facing death. You may be facing homelessness. You may be facing famine. You may be facing losing your job. You may be facing the breakup of a marriage. You may be facing a a, a child die or gone astray. You may be facing all kinds of painful, real things, those things do not and will not and cannot change the love of God He has for you. How in the world are you going to believe that? God's got to do the work in us. You're not going to believe that unless God has done the work 
of regenerating you first. So cry out to Him if you haven't. Cry out to Him. Oh, I love this. The rescue. So you're required to, to worship a God that's not a God? The refusal says, uh-uh, ain't going to do it. I will not worship any God but God. Look at the rescue. The rescue's awesome. Verses 19-27. through 27. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered. You know what I see right there? I, I literally can see this man completely and totally getting red. And his anger is such that his whole body is into his expression of wrath. They've called down the wrath of this finite ruler. Most powerful man on earth. What happens? He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He gets so flippin' angry that it almost seems like he loses it. It's like, what, you don't think they're going to die already You know, in the furnace? Give me a break, dude. What happens? Seven times hotter. I want it as hot as it can possibly be. So what happens? The flames of the fire slew those men who carried out Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. My gosh. The executioners got executed by what was intended for those faithful to God. Verse 24, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded. Oh no, verse 23, I'm sorry. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. They're still tied up. They're in the fire. They're in the fire. Have you ever stepped on hot coals? I remember a long time ago, long time ago at, um, in San Pedro, uh, celebrating the birthday of Karina, um, there were uh, hot coals, but you couldn't tell that they were hot in, um, uh, on the, on the, on, by the, um, what's it called? Yeah, but by, by the pit, no, by, by, the, by the rock, no. Yeah, somebody dumped it on the rocks, man. Dumped it on the rocks. She didn't know. She stepped on it and she really felt it. She really got hurt. But that little tiny pain's nothing. These guys get thrown into the fire. Look at what happens. Verse 24. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. He said, Look! I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Wow. Here we have the king's furies unleashed. The three men will not bow. Right? The executioners are slain. Those who are utterly protected are those flown into the flames. What does this tell us? This tells us, among other things, God's deliverance, God's deliverance, God's rescue is utterly, completely 
always perfect. If you read in the account, this always fascinated me, if you read in the account of the Exodus where God delivers Israel through the Red Sea, it says this, this is awesome, that they walked through dry ground. You got to see, right? And all of a sudden, they're walking on dry ground, not muddy ground. It's dry. God's deliverance is always complete, never missing a thing. It is perfect. But the thing that really gets to me here is here we have an instance of Emmanuel. God with us. In the worst of times. God does not abandon us. Even at times when we will get our heads cut off. Or well, or where we will be shot to death. God's love does not depart from His people. Do you believe that? His love is everlasting. And yet, peril is real. Danger is real. Here is what we have. Something uh, scholars call a theophany which many people think is a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not totally sure if it is or not. What we are sure of is this. This is a miracle and it's happening before the pagan king and his officials. It's right in front of you, buddy. You know what this text tells me? I'm not alone. We're not alone. You know the greatest pain I've ever experienced? Loneliness. Feeling like nobody cares. That my life doesn't matter. That I'm just here and I don't, you know, there's no meaning to my life. The loneliness that those thoughts uh, bring uh, can be so crippling emotionally and can really throw you into a tailspin of depression. I've experienced it. But God is faithful. <laughs> in my weakness, in my weakness, He's faithful. In your weakness, He's faithful, friend. You know, this morning as I was... Um, thinking about the sermon and coming up. As I was walking out of my house, the thought came to me, tell them they're not alone. They're not alone. You're not alone. You may feel like you're alone. And for those of you hearing through audio, you're not alone. You're not alone. 
the circumstances are not ultimate. God is ultimate. The sovereign king of creation is ultimate. Don't fear death. Don't fear death, friends. Don't fear death. Instead, fear dying without bowing the knee to this magnificent, benevolent, all-powerful God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who ultimately revealed himself in the second person of the Trinity, the Son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The fact is, through the cross of Christ, our greatest need... You know what our greatest need is? It's not having a great job. It's nice to have a good job. You know, you want to be able to pay your bills. Health, oh my gosh, I hate being sick. I hate it. How about being able to think straight? I love being able to think straight, and I hate it when I can't. It's horrible, and the older I'm getting, I'm experiencing those moments, you know what I mean? It's like, you know, like the other day, I was just, I was, I was painting, and I'm thinking, okay, why did I come here? Oh yeah, that's right. It happened at least five times within an hour. It's like, man! But, but that's okay. I will not lose heart. Because... My greatest need has already been provided. Peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is your greatest need. That is if this God of the Bible actually is true. And He is the one and true God and the only one whom everyone must bow to. Which I believe with all my heart He is. It's through the ultimate one and only exclusive God of creation who revealed Himself in space and time history, who is the only one that can rescue us from ultimate peril. And the ultimate peril is His wrath. What, what the three Hebrew children are, are experiencing, think about it, it's kind of an analogy. It's reversed. <laughs> really, the big problem here? is there is a furnace, metaphorically, of the wrath of God that awaits those who do not bow to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, whose kingdom is eternal, world without end. This is just an illustration of what's going to happen to those who are God's enemies. It's, can you see it? Just, it's, it's turned on its head. Biblical rescue. Biblical rescue is ultimately by God's sovereign power, not, listen, not my own or your own feeble attempts. That, in no wise does that say your choices don't have meaning, that you don't have to, that, that there is, aren't consequences for the choices we make. Yes, there are. That doesn't have anything to do with that because we're not ultimate. God is. And lastly, lastly, there's the reward. Verses 28 through 30, they're exalted before non-believers for their faithfulness to God. See that? They're, they're rewarded. Now, you know what? God could have chosen not to deliver them. 
But you know what? Their faithfulness would ultimately be rewarded by the King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you think about it, this chapter really is a little microcosm of the Christian life. Where constantly we are required, in quotes, to not be loyal to God. And where we have the opportunity to refuse to bow down to the idols of our age. So that we can experience the rescue of God in the midst. And ultimately, He will reward. He will reward. It just so happens that here, they were rewarded. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Verse uh, 29, he says, There is no other god who is able to deliver in this way. There's no other. He saw a miracle before him. Man, God was really gracious to this pagan king. And you know what? He's really, really gracious to somebody like me. I'm no different than King Nebuchadnezzar, unless God does a work in my life. I'd be just as hard, just as proud, just as lost. God triumphs. God triumphs over the pagan king. These three men prosper. And this king, Nebuchadnezzar, confesses there is no other God who's able to deliver in this way, which is akin to Philippians, right? Chapter 2, where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, until the new heaven and the new earth are here, my friends, until the redemptive plan of God is fulfilled, we've got to remember that we're going to face what these three Hebrew children faced. And we probably are facing it on a daily basis in one form or another. Where our loyalty is being challenged. Where the opportunity to refuse to bow down to the idols of this age are really an opportunity for us to see the hand of God move on our behalf. And not only that, but for us to let our light shine before men that they might see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. I want to close with a reading out of Revelation. Chapter 21, starting with verse 23. This is what is forthcoming. Oh, verse 22. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. This is talking about the New Jerusalem. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall enter Shall, shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. That's verse 20, uh, chapter 22, verse uh, 1. In the middle of its street, on 
either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve fruits, twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night, and they will have need, uh, not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the lamp of the sun, because of the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. Your best life now is ridiculous. It's completely unbiblical. Your best life awaits the new heaven, and the new earth. So where are you at? What are you living for? What are you living for? Are you living for the things that are temporary and fleeting? Have you bought into the lie of the spirit of the age that says not only that God is not there, but if He is, He's weak, He's not ultimate. What are you believing? My prayer is that you and I will believe in the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who alone is the sovereign, almighty, all-powerful King whose eternal reign will never, ever, ever, ever end. And He invites those who see their need for Him to bow the knee to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, what more can be said? My prayer is that You will take the word spoken that it truly will fall, the seed of the word will fall on fertile soil and it will produce 30, 60, and 100 fold to the glory of your name for the joy of our hearts because history is headed toward an end. It's not cyclical. You are the God of history. And we long to see you, Lord. We long to see you. In the midst of our pain, we desperately need to see you. Desperately need to see you. In the midst of our confusion and doubts, help us see you. In the midst of our heart, hearts that are hard and indifferent to you, to your word, to your kingdom, to your people, to the lost. Oh, we need to see you, Lord. So do a miracle in our lives this morning. For those who need new birth, oh God, do a miracle of new birth. Lord, for those who need to repent, may we repent.
for those of us who just needed to be encouraged. May we be strengthened to move on and carry on till our last breath. We need you, Lord. We bless your name this morning. Amen.